Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I guarantee you this, by the time the month of December is out, you will have these verses uh, forever committed into your memory. And that is so important. These are precious, precious words. In fact, this may be actually the penultimate Christmas story, which kind of sounds strange because there's no shepherds or wise men. There, uh, There's no star. There is no Bethlehem manger scene. But this kind of peels back the curtain and gives us a cosmic glimpse of what is coming on, or what is going on when when Jesus himself comes to earth. So, let's read it together again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in earth and on heaven and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But incredible words, words that were sung. This is a hymn, as we've said for, for a few weeks, and we've been looking at this passage. We started out a couple of weeks ago focusing in on verse 6, which really has the divinity of Christ in mind, that he has this divine nature. And then last week, we looked at verse 7, the wonder of the incarnation, that everything that made God God somehow gets incarnated, enfleshed in Jesus. And we looked at the humanity of Jesus and that, that, that mysterious, wondrous fusion of Jesus, who is at the same time fully divine and fully human. Something unique, something altogether wondrous. Well, today what I'd like to do is focus not so much on the who, who was Jesus, these these two natures, divine and human, but on the why. Why is this so important? Why why does God reveal himself this way? Why the incarnation? Years ago, you know, there was a, a lengthy conference that went on in Europe. It happened, it was hosted in Britain, and a group of comparative religion scholars had gathered together at Oxford, and they were trying to address this question about what it is that makes each of the religions unique, if anything. What is it that makes Christianity unique? And the debate went on for hours and hours, and they weren't really coming up with anything. Into the room steps a prominent literary critic, a man who was, uh, well, his actual given name was Clive Staples. But uh, his friends knew him as Jack. You may know him by his initials, C.S., C.S. Lewis steps in and says, hey, what's all the fuss about? So we're trying to find out if there's anything unique about Christianity. And he jumps right in and says, that's an easy one. Grace. 
It's grace. That's the word I want to spend the morning reflecting on with you. Grace. It's the why of the incarnation. And maybe you've heard some of this before. Maybe you've heard all of it before. But I hope there's none of us that yawn in the face of grace, that find somehow the message of grace gets tired or gets wearisome. We're going to look at incomprehensible grace. And we're going to do it as we have been over these past weeks by narrowing in on the book of Philippians. And this week we are in verse 8, Philippians 2.8. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, open them up. And let's look at that verse together. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. And what I'd like to do, and this is going to sound kind of strange for the Christmas season, but I want to focus with you on three movements, three moves that Jesus makes, the journey that he takes in three different ways that give us, I think, a fuller picture of what that word grace means and why it's so important to an understanding of of the incarnation of the Christmas season. So here's the first movement. It is a movement from exaltation, from the highest places, God enthroned in the universe, to humiliation, to the lowest depths of human misery and suffering, from exaltation to humiliation. Why? So that we may be exalted. That's the picture that we're seeing here in Philippians chapter 2. You notice in the verse where it says that Christ humbled himself. This is an action that Jesus took. It didn't happen to him. He wasn't humbled. There are lots of things that happen in our lives that humble us, right? Things that just bring us to our knees. But what I want you to see here is that that Christ was not humbled. Nobody humbled him, that he humbled himself. So what, what I'll have you do is just... Leave a marker in your Bibles there and turn with me for a minute to the Gospel of John in chapter 10. We're going to look at a few different passages in John. And I want you to see what happened to Christ when he was on earth, the humiliation that he experienced. But I want you to see that none of it was accidental. This wasn't just an unfortunate turn of events. And the angels weren't up there in heaven, some of scratching their heads, hey, we didn't see that one coming. Look, he got falsely accused. Or, hey, who would have seen that coming? They're going to do a trial. And, oh my goodness, how could we have possibly predicted that he was going to be marched out to execution? Look with me at John in chapter 10, in verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. John 10, 17 says, the reason that my father loves me, why? It's that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Listen to verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to do this, to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And this is the command that I've received from my father. You see what Jesus is saying here. Nobody's humbled me. Nobody takes it from me. This is my choice and I have the authority to make the choice. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. So he wasn't humbled. But he was humbling himself. 
Now, what does it mean? I mean, think for a second. What does it mean for Christ, for God in flesh, God incarnate, to humble himself? Remember Jesus, the divine nature, the human nature. What does it mean for the divine to take on human nature? And then to go a step further and say, not just human, but the lowest levels of humanity. A servant, a slave. And think about it even deeper than that. Just becoming human for something divine. Humbles himself and becomes subject to his creation. Think about that. It gives you a bit of a headache. Right? God, the creator of all things, now becomes subject in some way to his creation. It means that, that in spite of the fact that he is the architect of all existence, here is his creation not even recognizing who or what he is. This one whose glory is known throughout all the universe, displayed throughout the world, is now standing there in appearances of a man. And people don't see him. Matthew 13 has this this demoralizing account of Jesus going back to his hometown and the people saying, ah, why is he saying these things? He's just like us. He's just a man. The creator of the world, whose glory is known throughout the whole earth, is now unknown by the very people that he has made. He was subject to his creation. He obeyed his parents, in spite of the fact that, at some level, I guess he made his parents. He he made himself subject to to his employers while he was working. But not just parents and employers, the religious leaders of his day, the people in his culture who are known to be most devout, most seeking after God, the chosen people of Israel, when they find Jesus, they see him in appearance as a man. Listen to what they say to him in John chapter 8. You're a devil. You're like some kind of demon. And then they set him up with this mock trial. They bring him before the public. They scorn him in front of everyone. They make all these accusations. They trump up charges. And then they beat him and scourge him. They spit on him. And in the middle of it all, you know what Jesus does? Nothing. And the Gospels are quite clear. It says he didn't say a word. He became subject to his creation. Remarkable. I mean, unthinkable. What's the point? I mean, Richard, what what does all this mean? He was subject to his creation. Well, the point is this. His incarnate position, the Son of God, now in flesh, humbled before the whole world, makes possible our elevation, our eternal privileges as the children of God. We'll talk about the how in just a second, but but I hope for you that that, that idea, the, the incarnation, is never just cold facts, the stuff that resides on the pages of theology books. That, that his incarnation, from exaltation to humiliation, enables us to be elevated, 
that this is never cold and distant, that this is, this is warm and, and personal and relevant. What does it mean to say that his, uh, his emptying of himself allows for our elevation? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2 verses 11 and 12 says, If we died with him, what will happen? We also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. That somehow we have cast our lot with Christ and we identify with him. And so as he is exalted at the end of his long journey to earth and then his journey from earth into the heavens, we get caught up with him. It's put beautifully. I think one of the penultimate passages in scripture in Romans in chapter 8. Romans 8 verses 16 to 18. The spirit himself testifies with our own spirit. That we are God's children. Our identity has changed. We're his. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Therefore, I believe, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Just think about the mammoth realities in this verse. Any suffering that the world may heap upon us cannot compare with the future glory that will be revealed in us. Why? Because we have cast our lot with his. We are now co-heirs with Christ. And yeah, he suffered, and yeah, we suffer, but we share now in that. And as a result, we share in his glory. What does that mean? It means that that even though everywhere you turn, you hear the news, and hard news, somebody's been diagnosed with cancer, somebody's struggling with depression, somebody's lost their job. Isn't it, isn't it breathtaking to know that there is nothing in this life that can take away the glory that's reserved for those who have trusted in the Son of God. Nothing takes it away. From exaltation to humiliation, why? So that we can be exalted. That's the first movement. Here's the second. It's the movement from death to life. For us. From death to life, so that we too can live. And this really, I mean, this gets to the very heart of what salvation is all about, doesn't it? Remember, and we, we read this a couple of weeks ago. I think we revisited again last week in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. We, we read the introduction of Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And he was there in the beginning. Okay, that's the picture. And then it goes on in verse 4 to say, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. In him was life. It's who Jesus is. It's who Christ is. He's life. Everything about him is life. That's what God is. He's the source of life. He's the sustainer of life. Life abundant. Life eternal. But then we get to Philippians 2. 
if you still have your, your placeholder there, in verse 8, it says, Now being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to what? To death. Here he was life, the life that was the light of men. Humbles himself to death. Why? Why? So that we too may live. And this is where we have to take maybe a couple of steps back. Or, or maybe it's actually we're taking a couple of steps forward. Moving from the Christmas story into the greater story of which Christmas is only a part. When you think about this baby, this wondrous child who gets laid in a manger, you think about how he came to reveal God to us. Hey, what's God like? What's his character like? What are his priorities? What are the things that he'd be interested in? Well, look to Jesus. There's the example. But his coming, his birth, that alone, that is not the fullness of salvation. The idea that he lived this remarkable life, this sinless life, that he never once broke faith with God or with other people, that alone has absolutely no redemptive force for us. All it does is sets the bar high. Look, it can be done. He did it. We can say this of Jesus. He came to do a lot of things, all of them really important. He came to teach the truth. He came to talk to us about the Father's kingdom. He came to heal the sick and, and restore sight to the blind. He, he came to feed the hungry and care for outcasts and, and look after those that the world had forgotten and set aside. He did all of these things, but ultimately, none of those were his real purpose. His real purpose is this. Jesus Christ was born, laid in a manger, and one day he would be raised up on a cross. That's, that's the impossible mystery of the incarnation. This baby was born to die. And we say, well, I mean, that's true of all babies. I mean, by necessity, the moment we enter the world, we know eventually we'll, we'll be leaving it. But that's not the purpose of our lives. That's just the sad consequence of the way our lives are limited, the way they end. For, for Christ, this was his purpose. He was born to die. That was just part of who he was. That the whole trajectory of his life was headed in that direction. And again, it was his choice. It didn't happen to him. It happened because that was his will and intent and his design. Nobody humbled him. This was his choice. And you find the markers, the foreshadow, if you'd like, right there in the Christmas story. Let me show you where. I know you're dancing around lots in your Bibles. That's okay. Look at Matthew chapter 2. This is one of the classic Christmas stories. In fact, Raj, you sang us this story this morning. And uh, this is the story of those traveling magi. Sometimes we call them the wise men who made that long journey from the east to Bethlehem. They were stargazers. They were following a star. They recognized in the heavens the sign that, that something fantastic had happened. A newborn king. 
So this is what Matthew 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says. That the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And then on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. What are the gifts? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Strange gifts, right? Uh, probably none of those under your tree. That, well, maybe gold, if you've been good. Gold, I mean, then and now, a precious gift. A, a gift that represented nobility, royalty. This is a gift fit for a king. And frankincense, incense, you know, the stuff that, that a priest would burn, particularly before the Holy of Holies, in the sacred presence of God. But the most bizarre of all the gifts is myrrh. Really an odd gift for a baby. Myrrh was an ointment, one used as an embalming agent. It was used in funeral preparations. And so in the gifts given to Jesus, you have a gift fit for the king. Offered in the presence of the Holy of Holies. But also recognizing that this little one was born to die. The clues are right there at the moment of Jesus' birth. And not just to die. Back to Philippians 2 again. Philippians 2 verse 8. Obedience to death, even death on a what? On a cross. I mean, this is, this is the climax. This is the bitter but necessary climax of the life, of the human life, the earthly life of the Son of God. It, it climaxes in the most shameful, shocking, brutal death imaginable. I mean, long before we turned it into a piece of jewelry or an elaborate decoration to adorn our sanctuaries, mention of the word cross in any public setting would have elicited fear and horror. So they would hear those words, even death on a cross. And when they were spoken or when they were sung, you would kind of gasp when you heard them. It would take your breath away for a second. You became obedient, not just to death, but of all deaths, this one, death on a cross. Because for those who lived in a world where crucifixion was being practiced, the cross was... Uh, it was a number of things, but it was primarily these three things. It was, first of all, a shameful death. It was a way to blot out not only a man, but a man's memory. You never talked again about somebody who had been crucified. You didn't even talk about crucifixion. It was just such a horror show. It was shameful. Not just a shameful death, but... A painful death. I mean, this is the most brutal, agonizing form of torture that human beings in their awful creativity had devised. So shameful and painful. But lastly, it was this. It was a cursed death. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. You don't have to uh, turn to it, but you can read it with me. 
from the Old Testament, anyone who is hung on a tree, crucified, is under God's curse. Why? Why would he do that? What is the reality of the incarnation? Well, here's the result. He was born to die. Why? So that we could live. 2,000 years later, he was born to die so that I can be born again to live. I mean, here's the beauty of it. Crucifixion, which is designed to blot out not just the man, but the memory of a man. Here we are 2,000 years later, gathered together singing about this man, rejoicing in his mastery over death. And you and I, we don't walk around feeling captive to our own sin. We're freed. We're free to live. We're free to live now, and we're free to live for all eternity. Why? Because what was meant to be shameful becomes our honor. And what was meant to be painful becomes our healing. You know those verses, Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are what? We are healed. In a refrain that sort of puts it the same way, 1 Peter 2 says, by his wounds we are healed. That somehow, remarkably, the mystery of the incarnation is this, that, that his pain, his humility, his great descent, even to the place of offering up life itself, that becomes our healing and our joy. And I don't mean that in a kind of sociopathic way where we're rejoicing because somebody has died. No, I, I mean that in a redemptive way. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us, bought us back. Redeemed us from what? From the curse. The curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Remember, that's the purpose of crucifixion. Shameful, painful, and cursed. But through this curse, he becomes our blessing. That's, I mean, that's incomprehensible, right? Incomprehensible grace. We're not worthy of that kind of grace. I hope it never makes you complacent. That we never find ourselves yawning in the face of grace. This is a mammoth truth that affects us now and for all. Eternity. So that's the second movement. The first movement is from exaltation to humiliation. The second from life to death. Here's the third. It is from riches to poverty. Why? So that we may become rich. And before you get excited and run out saying you've won the lottery, let's just put a pause on that and And we'll go to a a deeper place in understanding what the riches are. Turn with me in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians to chapter 8 in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for even though he was rich, that's putting it mildly, right? All of the riches and wealth, prosperity, goodness, glory of the universe is embodied in who he is. He is divine, fully divine. And yet now incarnate in in human form. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. 
who are why. So that through his poverty you might become rich. All that he owns, all the resources of the world belonging to him. And yet, for his sake, he sets them all aside. He had the rights, the prerogatives of God himself. And yet, he doesn't hang on to any of those things. He, he takes on the nature of a servant, a slave, sets aside any claim to rights and privileges. He gives up all of his resources. Who does he give them to? Well, remarkably, he gives them to you. But never let the adversary convince you that you are nothing, or that you have nothing, or that you are empty. By the grace of God, you are never empty. You are, Ephesians 3 says, filled to the measure by the very fullness of God. That's Christ. I mean, you see his poverty, he gives up rights, he gives up resources, so that those of us who hold on to him, the followers of Christ, get to enjoy that. Now think about it. If we are meant to be his people in the world, those who have the honor, the privilege of bearing his name, if we see his poverty, if we see his abdication of rights, what should our posture be in the world? If we see his poverty, should we be clamoring to accumulate and hold on to as many resources as we can? If he gave up his rights, should we make the assertion of our own rights and privileges be the thing that we are most interested in? Let me, let me be honest with you about something. I, one of the things I have struggled with most for the past 18, 19 months now, as the world has wrestled its way through the pandemic, is the ongoing conversation always about my rights. It's my right. My right. Trampling on my rights. And I can understand how that conversation is happening out there. But when it gets echoed and amplified in here, that the the ultimate value on which we will camp out is my rights. I just wonder how much Jesus has really embedded himself into our lives. Where is the sacrificial desire to set aside some of your rights on behalf of another? Regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of discussion and decision, because we're, we're all making sacrifices but where is the desire to do so honorably and generously and genuinely following the example of the one in whom we live and move and have our being? Remember, that was the whole context for Philippians 2. Those words we have now read three weeks in a row. Paul, who wrote the words, had been imploring the church, as I'm imploring you now, Look out for other people's interests above your own. It's not always about you. In order to make his case, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to quote that hymn, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but set it aside. Rights, privileges, wealth, resources. Paul is just... He's desperate to get people to see 
that in order to look after those who are around you, you may have to sacrifice some of the things that you feel like you are entitled to. In order to take care of somebody who is desperately concerned about their health, you may have to make sacrifices. In order to honor somebody who isn't convinced that this is anything more than a hoax, you may have to say something or do something or assume a posture that isn't comfortable for you. But but we're doing it out of love and care for the other. Paul was speaking to his world. and He's saying that, you know, don't let all that stuff going on in the big cities, Corinthian prosperity and fame and notoriety, the making and the accumulation of stuff, don't let that be your modus operandi. Don't let that be the reason for which you live. God help us. I mean, really. God help us to see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ again. Who even though he was rich, became poor so that we could become rich. Help us, Lord, to echo some of that character in the world today. Because God knows we need it. The bottom line really is this. Christmas is a story of amazement. God amazed his people with the grace that takes us from exaltation to humility and then back again. Amazes us with the sacrifice and generosity of his son. This one who goes from life to death and then, praise God, carries us with him back to life again. Who goes from rich to poor that's you, so that you and I can enjoy an abundance that would be unthinkable otherwise. And when we see all of that, let's draw out the connection here. If God is not finished with the world, and if the plan hasn't changed, if his desire is still to amaze the nations, to amaze the GTA with grace, through humility and sacrifice and generosity, isn't it possible that he wants to do that through that that one unique creation that he says will be his body, his ambassadors, his representation to the world through the church. His desire is to show the same generosity, the same sacrifice to the world. Shouldn't it start here with us? Really, the incarnation isn't just something that happened in Jesus. It's something that continues every time Jesus gets woven into the life of one of his people. God incarnates, makes himself present in you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the magnitude of the incarnation. Jesus, we bow before you today. We praise you for the message of this season. For everything that we have learned about you. When you came to to live on earth in the person of Jesus. For the remarkable glimpse that you've given us behind the scenes of human history. Your 
your humiliation, your death, your poverty, all of it, to make us who and what we are, a people with a reason to sing and to celebrate. Glory be to your name, God, today. We pray that you would make us a people who can show that to the world around us, a people who see your grace and your sacrifice and with all that has been entrusted to us, with our rights and resources, we lay them down. We offer them to the world that you have loved. In Jesus' name and in his name we pray.